Watch this. Hello and welcome back to the Cookie Jar Golf Podcast. I am Tom Mills and today I've got the whole crew. I'm joined by Sam Williams. Hello. Cal Wing. Hello. And Bruce Fitzpatrick. Good day. As always, you can get us on all social media channels and in a little nod to our friend Rick, smash that like button and subscribe. I can't keep that in, can I? Yeah, we can. could really do with some Russian bots following the YouTube account and getting us up to that near one mil mark. But it's good. Uh, it's good publicity, though, isn't it? Mm, great. I mean, if you wanted to get yourselves on uh, on BBC News, that's what we would do. I'll make you a cake when you get to a hundred YouTube followers, Tom. How's that? We've got a lot to look at this week. Um, we might as well start with the obvious. Um, Bryson throwing his toys at the pram. Let's let's talk about his victory first. A very very. Sh- let's keep it brief because it was. Almost a It's well fest. covered, isn't it? It's very well covered. I didn't think the tournament was particularly exciting at all. Um, wow. Other than the fact that it looked like um, Bruce's favourite, Matthew Wolfe, um, the most interesting swing in golf and the most o- overhyped golfer of all time, I'd possibly agree, but um, looked like winning and then seemed to hit the, hit the panic button a little. But Bryson is clearly, when you look at you know, very credible numbers experts and stat analysis in the game. And you can see the the way the pros are kind of commentating on the whole subject. It's clear that the work he's done has, has given him an enormous advantage on any other player out on the on, on the course. Absolutely. Yeah. It's um it is remarkable what he's done. It's extremely impressive. Um and I'm not actually sure how how many other guys on the on the current PGA Tour will try and emulate what he's done just because it is very demanding. I mean, just reading about the sort of, well, reading about the details of, of, of his training and how he's gone about increasing his club head speed is quite interesting. Um, he's got to be a single man. <laughs> well, yeah, that, I think Kevin Kisner made a joke about that. Kevin Kisner was asked, like, what do you reckon to Bryson, all the work he's done? He's like, well, if you had a wife and kids, I think you'd have a bit more sympathy for us, which is probably a fair point but um it, yeah I, I think without wanting to get too far ahead of ourselves it begs the question are the pros of the future all going to be looking like you know bryson and smashing the ball 350 through the air there must be yeah uh, i mean what do you do if you're in that top let's say you're in like a fairly fairly established pro you know because bryson's been around for a few years now hasn't he do you mm-hmm. start to hit a button that says right well i'm just going to invest all efforts into doing this or do you stick yeah. with the game plan of you know, improving the game in the way that you're already working on. That's a, I mean, it's a really difficult one, but when you've seen that someone can do it in quite a short space of time, do you look to achieve that? I mean, what would happen if a Rory wanted to go even further out on generating more club head speed and wanted well, yeah. to see if it could find an extra 20 or 30 yards? When you look at the quality of his golf and then look at the impact that it's had on Bryson, there's an argument to say that Rory would become untouchable if everything else remained equal. And without wanting to bore you too much, because I know you guys and and probably most of our listeners don't care about the technical stuff, but I mean, it's not just physical training in the gym that DeChambeau's done to put that speed on. Like he's actually changed his swing um, in a significant way to accommodate that increase in club head speed so that he's now able to 
hit the ball miles but still keep it on the planet because you know there's plenty of examples of golfers in fact i think he almost stands as the only golfer who's radically changed his body type and still maintained a high level of golf it's just that left foot clearing out the way just to make free <laughs> as everything flows yeah, it does through. like a it does like a 90 degree turn doesn't it in that it just yeah it's like a, it's almost like a shot putter isn't it and he sort of like clears that left side so yeah well. i mean i've got pretty basic knowledge of um of the swing but i can see that and that's mm. i can see what he's trying to do there well reading about it in a little bit of detail apparently what he's done is he started training more in like the end ranges of motion so if you think about like sprinters who do squats like if you're doing a squat you're quite strong in the middle of the movement but then at the bottom of the movement and i think somewhat at the top of the movement you're fairly weak so there's not that consistent power output you've just got this middle section of the movement where you're really really strong and apparently Dejambo's basically applied that principle to his golf swing where you know end ranges of movement with his shoulder and his hip like he's basically like racked up a load of weight and strength in those areas which means he now has like just a ridiculous amount of consistent power output throughout the whole range of his swing and yeah I mean like the guy is hitting the ball sort of well the ball speed's like 25 miles an hour above tour average which is just ridiculous so i've like i've flicked flicked on the tv at half 10 whatever it is sunday night and just saw them to the final holes and i think dechambeau is pretty much on the 18th at this time and he's just thrashed it like 365 yards down the middle wedge in five feet he hasn't even got a good wedge game to stand to, to sort of, yeah. you know, they even say his wedge yeah. game is just so far off the off the mark, and yet he's walked it. But really. what I think what is really impressive about this whole thing, and you know, we we always hop back to Justin Ray's stuff, that his strokes gained putting this week, it was better than his strokes gained off the tee. Yeah, I mean, the dude has putted like, and and you think like, you know, he's gone away, he's got huge, he's got fast, but then he's kept the he's touch. Not working on the. Yeah, he's not working on the, the small stuff, but he's clearly, you know, still still got the, the mm. game. Yeah, and I mean, the only isolated ex- example of that, perhaps, you know, to the contrary, is that that chip out, I think he hit on, was it 14 or 15 or one of those holes on the back nine where he chips it out and it went in the water. That's maybe the only example of... <laughs> but again, it's just, what does that really stand for? It's just one sort of isolated incident where he probably had a hard fairway as well and it's just scooted on but yeah if he gets the wedge game dialed in then you'd think he could be could be unstoppable the thing is he's got he's got this this pristine image which he needs to uphold his brand and he can't be seen to be damaging the brand i mean this was this was silly really wasn't it i mean you partly, can't be partly over-reported again, I suspect, like, like anything else. I know, else. but you can't be on stage earning millions and millions and millions of dollars and not expect a camera to follow you around everywhere. It's just part and parcel of, the, of what you're doing. Um, mm-hmm. He's lost the plot, really, isn't he? Sorry, what's this you're, you're referring to? His past antics? No, there was no, no, something the, in the bunker, uh, in the... wasn't there? I don't, I don't really follow what yeah, happened. Yeah, yeah I didn't see it. But I heard he had a little altercation with a cameraman. Yeah, he hits an he hits a not fantastic shot, and he's upset with himself. You know, it's not it's a hint of the Sergio's, but not but not fully. And then um, the cameraman like basically follows him round the green and like gets quite close to him. And Bryson just lost the plot, so Bryson finished the hole. And as they moved on, he st- he starts on the cameraman and says like. 
basically you can't i don't think you can hear what's going on but he's there for a good few minutes berating the cameraman essentially saying that um i don't know why you're following me i'm upset you should be leaving me alone you're damaging my brand i think i think that's the um, i think that's the roids talking isn't it it's um (laughs) i mean i've got to be honest yeah the i don't know if you guys watched his victory speech after Holy shit, that was like one of the worst speeches I think I've ever heard. Didn't he just reel all his brands mate, off? Or yeah, whatever he yeah. Oh, mate, it was, it was nuts. So I think, is it Amanda Balionis? Was it her yeah. who was presenting the, the trophy to him or just saying like, well done and doing the interview as well? And she just asked a fairly like innocuous question, like, like talk us through the emotions this week or, or you know, you've obviously been hitting the ball a prodigious distance since the end of the lockdown how does it feel to to finally win one and he then yeah he then just totally pivoted and went off on a tangent about he wants to thank all of his brands and yeah it was just bizarre utterly bizarre like the most contrived victory speech i think i've ever heard i think the guy's going to single-handedly um for he's going to force the rules to be changed certainly on the ball and everything else i mean it's just going to be Imagine this every week, just like thrashing it, mm. 380 yards, whatever. But he'll still be hitting it further. It. He'll still be hitting it further than everyone with old equipment, wouldn't he? So it's yeah, just... I mean, oh, yeah. Would, it, would he keep just, it on the planet? Just pin it back yeah. a bit, just mm. to sort of... They've got to protect the courses. I mean, so, it's just a, so, another so, conversation. <laughs> your yeah, boy Kisner's yeah. hitting it 220 off the tee then. They'll reel it back so Shambo's hitting it 300. Kisner's trying to carry a bunker. <laughs> Well, what is there at 100 like, yeah. yards? Seriously, take that, take that as, I mean, because that was the interesting part, I thought. You looked at Matthew Wolf, who's hitting the ball not, not too far actually off. He's probably the, one of the biggest hitters on tour with the exception oh, of long, yeah. Bryson. You've got those two at, at one and two, and then in spot three, you've got Kisner. Now, if you say Kisner's best drive, and I know that doesn't come into play on every single hole because they're position play as well, but there's nearly 100 yards, well, there's certainly 60 to 70 yards between the two. If I think about the clubs I'm hitting in, 60, 70 yards, you're talking possibly about the difference between a wedge and a five iron. Oh, yeah. So, you know, Kisner is trying to compete by hitting a five iron in from where Bryson or Wolves hitting wedge as a, as a fairly, I think that's a, that's a pretty crude rule of thumb, but probably applies. Yeah. That is staggering. Absolutely. I think staggering. the PGA Tour really normalizes um, these numbers like 300 yards. Like, oh, people drive 300 yards. You go to a, a normal golf club in a normal place around the world, and if you saw a 300 yard drive, you'd be like, fuck, that is huge. Because most people are hitting their drives realistically. Most amateur golf club golfers hit their drives like 250. They may think they hit 300-yard drives, but they don't. They hit about 250. And Bryson is now hitting it probably 130, 140 yards further than the average club golfer. It's just insane. Absolutely insane. I know. Something will have to be done at some point. But but it'd be interesting to see how the rest of the year goes and how, um, how that holds up in... Whatever, there's one thing for sure we have left and yeah i mean at club head speed near seized. the 130s there's not enormous scope for um something to go wrong in that swim before you've got some fairly diabolical consequences yeah. either so I, i'd be um but that's sort I'd of free watching with interest it? yeah exactly let's exactly. not get carried away with ourselves it's um, the rocket mortgage classic whatever it was there'll be an element of freewheeling that but. did anyone else have um 
Did anyone else have Fede Legrand's put your hands up for Detroit going through their head on the back nine when, you, when you're watching it? Good song. I haven't heard that in a while. Oh, I think it's absolutely dreadful. I listened to it again. I was like, I can't believe we used to think this was a good song. <laughs> but, Were you even alive when that came out? I'm not sure, but I've heard it. It was just going, it was just going through my head as like Bryson's sort of, you know, doing his neurological ramp up before blasting a drive 360 down the 18th. He's going like... <laughs> I'm just thinking, has he got Fede Legrand in his head or something? I love this silly. Bosh. Yeah. yeah. But he's got, we've had, um, just before we move on, because um, this is plenty of air times we're giving the Rocket Mortgage, mortgage Classic, um, some good representation from the Brits. Um, Matt Wallace, Tom Lewis, T12, Terrell Hatton, Danny Willett, T4. I must admit, I missed... Um... I saw Willett, Wallace, Hatton, all of that. Actually, until this morning, just flicking through some stuff, I didn't actually appreciate that Tom Lewis um, finished tied twelfth, which was um, which was very yeah, good. Hell of a performance! Excellent. Yeah, yeah. It's good to see some uh, representation up there, isn't it? Yeah, agreed. Um, so we've now but, got two weeks on the spin, have we? At Muirfield Village, is that right? Jack's place, I believe so. Yeah. No, surely not. Yeah, you're back to back. It's like it's like what we're doing with the Celtic Manor now. I think Muirfield Village is a slightly more distinguished golf course than the 2010. Um, but I think eight days of watching this. Well, and that that was why we wanted to talk about Jack Nicholas because I thought it was a good jumping off point with two weeks of um, tournament golf at probably his, you know, ugly his, his best course that, that he's put his name to um, to maybe talk about the career legacy and 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 work of, of Jack Nicholas. So, um, but I just couldn't when I looked at it, I couldn't quite rack my head as to why exactly that was the decision i can only assume it's for logistics it seems like the only reason they. Would yeah do one it. of them's this work day charity open though isn't it and i think I, there was was yeah. it initially they were going to try and get some fans involved but then they kind of u-turned on that i think you're right i mean it's an enviable situation isn't it the pga tours in where you know you've got political meltdown in the u.s and the coronavirus caseload is still spiking so i don't know i guess they're just they're playing it by ear. Yeah, doesn't doesn't look mm. like it's going anywhere, does it? But we're going to uh, dedicate a bit of this, well, a lot of this to Jack Nicholas then, and spe- specifically uh, his early career and moving on to the architecture side of it and some of the courses he's put his name to. So um, how are we bought, how are we going to kick this off, lads? Well, I've covered the um, early years. Do you want me to start as? Um, Seems like it makes sense. Very basic from the beginning. Yeah, I think it'd be, I mean, because there's, there's so many facets to his life, aren't there? And, you know, I suppose the the ultimate question, is he the greatest of all time? And I think that would be, in my head, the, the, the biggest question to be answered because there's so much talk about the goat, quote unquote, you know, and, and, and he's got a huge body of work and it's not just great professional career, but kind of wanting to understand the rich tapestry of Jack's life beyond 18 major championships. I mean, yeah, I mean, born in Columbus, Ohio, um, yeah, I mean, he seems as a kid, from what I've read, he seems pretty good at most sports. Um, very good at basketball, funny enough. That was um, that was almost um, sort of taking over his uh, favourite sport of the goal. Is he a big lad? Uh, so big I think you'd say stocky. Yeah. So he was quite, you look back at early pitches and he's, I'd probably say he's, I don't think he's quite six foot. I've got a feeling he'd probably be like 5'9", five, 5'10". Five, but you look at the early years and he's, I mean, not quite DeChambeau sort of bulking, but stocky. Look strong, I think you'd say. Legs uh, like tree trunks. Yeah, yeah, strong for that era. 
exactly as, as much as whatever work working out they did then but yeah naturally looking pretty fit uh i mean yeah, he didn't really take golf up until the age of 10 his dad was off scratch so he was sort of picking it up dabbling but basketball was certainly a favorite sport and then from 10 onwards he just goes it goes berserk he's off plus three by the time he's 13 uh he won goes on to win five straight ohio state junior titles um 15 it's then moving quite quickly now he's qualified for the u.s amateur then at 18 he made the cut at the u.s open and decides he wants, and then he goes on, stays local, goes to Ohio State University. Um, and then during his time there, he's won the US Amateur twice. He's won the NCAA, which is sort of like college, US college sort of. It's, it's, it's a big tournament in college golf. My limited knowledge of an NCAA, it's sort of like the top accolade, isn't it? Mm-hmm. College, really, yeah. um, for golfing. So an All-American, whatever you want to call it. Um and that he's pretty much cleared up around the country on sort of most other top regional events. Um, Some of those numbers you've just skipped over, Cal, are simply unbelievable. The, the concept that you could take a 10-year-old child and get them to plus three in the oh, space yeah. of three years is just three staggering. Yeah, he was like, he, but you read about it and he's, it's the equivalent of Tiger. I mean, it's literally just, He's picked up a club from day one, and it's like he's been playing mm. nonstop for a year. It's just that gifted. It's um, God-given talent, isn't it? And there's a lot of talk about 10,000 hours, you can master anything. But, you know, there, you've got to beg the question, there's just a God-given talent, uh, just kind of... Oh, yeah, God-given talent with... Um, yeah, certainly there'll be uh, with a huge element of dedication, I'm sure. And also just um, his environment as well. I mean... Do you know when he started working with Jack Grout, um, Cal? I think it, yeah, yeah so that was certainly. Was like, I touched on that briefly. From what I gathered, he was sort of um, he was involved with Ben Hogan as well, wasn't he? Is that right? Yeah. So Jack Grout, I mean, he was a decent professional in his own right, and I think he played a fair bit of golf with Byron Nelson and Ben Hogan, who were the two titans of the professional game at at, at that point in time. And I'm pretty sure Jack Grout was the first sort of coach that that nicholas saw and basically like you know worked with nicholas um as soon as he took up the game which i guess if you've got a teacher who um who is prolific and dedicated as jack grout was i mean i think nicholas always said like at the end of each season he'd go back to jack grout and say right like teach me my swing teach me my swing i need to learn my fundamentals again which probably goes a long way in explaining why he had such a brilliant record and was so consistent was because Mm. you know he wasn't somebody who tried to reinvent the wheel or change his swing too much he just had absolute faith in jack grout and as a result you know of consistent application and 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 trust he ended up becoming you know that 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 the legend of the game that we all know today and then, so he's obviously gone on to uh, college, doing his thing whilst he's college. Yeah, he's clearing up around the country and most things he's playing in. He's then finished second behind Arnold Palmer in the US Open as a 21-year-old. Um, naturally, this has all gone on to sort of representing America in the Walker Cup. Um, he only had one attempt at the British Amateur at the time, which was at Royal St. George's. He got to the quarterfinals. That's the best he offered there, but he was trying to travel a little bit. But I found quite interesting. He actually had no intention to turn pro this mm. time. He was he'd flicked around a couple of um, couple of different courses at Ohio, at Ohio State, um, 
and he yeah he sort of decided on um on a degree on insurance not quite sure how that works but he was planning to yeah to travel whilst playing amateur golf but he was very much focused on um on selling insurance for a living um and it he's glad he went down the golfing path exactly he married quite early had kids quite early on i think he's at least four or five and then at that state i think when the pro game and certainly what arnold palmer had done for the pro game at that time these guys are actually earning a pretty decent living um and so last minute he thought actually for sake of my family and um giving them some uh a bit of security went and turned pro and the rest is history bobby jones was his hero i think in the in his early days well, yeah. which perhaps also explains exactly. the um that hesitant sort of or the reluctance to turn pro, I guess, straight away. Um, yeah, very much so. Very much um, a family man like Bobby was. And interesting point to... about the Walker Cup you raised there, Cal, is that um, I'm pretty sure he played Michael Banalek in his singles match during yeah. the Walker Cup. And it was Banalek, I think Banalek beat Jack Nicholas one up. Um, but he said, like having seen that American like hit the ball as well as he did and as long as he did, that I think caused Michael Banalek to decide against turning pro. Is I mean, I don't know whether that's an apocryphal story, but uh, it's certainly an interesting one if it is true. Does anyone know um, when he came on on the scene? When certainly when he turned pro and when he came second in the in the U.S. Open, there was this sort of public. I don't want to say disdain because I don't think that's that's unfair. But there was certainly a public disliking of Jack from from Arnie's army. Um, what was it that people seemed to see in Arnie that they didn't really like in Jack? Arnie was a man of the people, wasn't he? I think is really the, the you know, if you read about it and look at it, the whole Arnie's army thing is he appealed to a, a you know, he was a people's champion man. yeah he was a people's yeah. champion wasn't he and, and notwithstanding Arnie was dominating the game in a period just before when Jack came along and, and was absolutely prolific so you can imagine that it was almost like as a passing of the baton that it was a, you know there's always a bit of reluctance isn't there like if you're used to you know let's take, take I don't know maybe now for example and let's just I don't know wind it on six months and we've just talked about Bryson you, you likes of Rory and and Brooks who are dominating the, the game and then Bryson comes along and all of a sudden eclipses them there's already that kind of hesitancy maybe that was the same thing I, I, I honestly don't know but he, he seemed you know Palmer was very good at ingratiating himself with the supporters wasn't he and and that was kind of his big thing really I mean yeah Arnie played a big part in um in setting up the tour, really. I think he was, I think it was McCormack who founded IMG. IMG, yeah. My memory they found right. the whole firm together, didn't they? They were, really? they were like best mates. And uh, obviously McCormack was looking after Arnie's affairs and put two and two together, came out with this, with the tour. And that was it. That's when um, that's when all the prize funds started increasing and everything else. And um, yeah. Well, just on the prize fund, I did look into it because... Um, his first Masters win, obviously not his first ever major win, but 1963 when the first Masters. He then his final his final major win was the Masters in 1986. The the difference in prize money he picked up there was seven times what he picked up um, in his first Masters win, which I think probably gives you a sense of the growth of the game. That you know, no doubt he drove and pushed and stuff, but it was. Um, 
certainly climbing at that point. Yeah. So you, yeah, I mean, like you can see looking back with the benefit of 23 years hindsight that there's a lot more money in the game than maybe he'd envisioned when he, when he initially turned pro perhaps. What were those um, winners checks? If you don't mind me asking, Sam. Do you want them itemised? Because I do not have what? those, Bruce. Oh, no, I just wondered roughly what it is. Because obviously it's, you know, it's like 1.2 million, I guess, now, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, so I think in 86, he won $144,000. So, And that would have been yeah. many multiples of the first one he picked up as well. Mm. 86 was his last, wasn't it? So you're in the 20,000 odd for, for first place in 63, aren't you? Something around that mark, early 20s. Wow. Um, so I mean that is a that's a quantum leap. Now I don't know what the spread mm. was like. I haven't got details on but the that. Purses. Was still, um, that was still a lot of money back then. Mm. So. Yeah, yeah. You obviously got budget and inflation and all that sort of stuff. But it, it's it, it's clear that there was a, a massive leap. And it, I don't know if there's when the last amateur golfer to win the U.S. Open would have been. But I'm guessing that run for second when he was an amateur just before before turning pro. Uh, it, it's yeah, a speculative I mean, guess, but is that the closest anyone's come post? <laughs> Well, it's, in, it's in that era. That, when he finished seconds, he held up until last year or, yeah, it would have been um, 2019 or 2018. That Basically, that he held the lowest scoring record at a US Open by an amateur um, for that long. And it was actually Victor Hovland who broke that record. It was either 2019 or 2018. Wow. I mean, it's some amateur career, Stat. isn't it? And the, in- Pebble Beach. I don't know, maybe we're drifting a little, maybe I'm jumping the gun talking about his professional stuff. But when when I looked into his his professional career, uh, I suppose a couple of things stood off. He he played a relatively select schedule. I wouldn't say he was a I wouldn't say he was a complete sort of you know, he wasn't a, he wasn't the Sun J M of his of his times, kind of going from holiday in to travel lodge week in, week out and playing every event. He played a select rotor, I think and that that enabled him to then major on those major tournaments that he wanted to win. And a lot of lot of stuffs talked about with eighteen wins. And I think we'll probably have the discussion of whether that will ever be beaten. And and, and I've got my own views on that. But the also staggering statistic is like when you get in a clubhouse and you have a good round and you think, well, actually, it could have been a lot lower. He had nineteen runner ups in majors, it's, which is Insane, which is that? just frightening. And when I look at it and go, I think. So he had 19 runner-up finishes. Five of those came in a playoff. Yeah. All were by, all were by one stroke. Wow. Well, of course, there's the famous duel in the sun against Tom Watson. Mm. Um, yeah, 77 is... at Turnbury. So that's a... I mean, I, I would, you know, of, of, of major performances that don't go on to win, that's arguably probably one of the greatest. Um, you know, I think that 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 kind of joust at True with Mixon and Stenson is probably a close run run affair as well. But do you have the stat on how many victories he had in a playoff? No, I don't. I don't have it to hand. There were quite a few though. So, like, you know, there's you know famous playoff holes. I mean, there's a you know fantastic one where you look at. I think it's St Andrews. I think it's 1970 um, where. He's obviously got Doug Sanders, so Doug's got that kind of famous, you know, sort of two foot yeah. putt that slides, you know, low and right. It's just a poor stroke, and he's dressed sweet in sweet trousers, though. Sweet purple. Was it? Was it? Was it two or was it one and a half? Mm, don't know. I don't know about maybe one and a half foot. Let's, let's let's not let the truth get in the way of a good story. But um, he he then kind of puts his arm around him and plays an eighteen hole play, you know, playoff and wins there. He, he's I don't I wouldn't say he's a gasser if that's the if that's the leading question. Tom. No, just uh, just. 
it's interesting to think of you guys because I don't know the answer and I wonder whether he's got 18 majors and and say eight of them were in were in playoffs you know you might think if he got the wrong sort of side of it he could have turned out having 10 majors and 24 25 runners up you know what I mean um, he won. Similarly, if he got the right side of it, then mm. you know it could have been twenty, twenty-three majors, couldn't it? He won three. He won three through playoffs. Um, but and yeah, without wanting to sound too controversial, like my from my limited knowledge on the matter, or from what I've heard other people say, is that the greatest strength of of Nicholas was his mind and how he basically didn't fall away really in any majors in if anything he would kind of charge through the field and i think there's a quote that's attributed to him which is you know he basically would find it easier to win you know his equivalent of the the waste management phoenix open or the rocket mortgage mortgage classic he he would find that harder to win sorry because a lot of the of his peers were kind of freewheeling it and and playing you know a very high standard of golf whereas when it came to majors they sort of tense up and fall away um whereas he didn't do that yeah, so we've touched on that before, thing, haven't it? we? It's like you know, what yeah, do you he... do under pressure, and you know, it brings out the best in Jack. It it, it allowed others to kind of become more hesitant. Mm. So what he said, didn't he? He said that the the majors. I think the direct quote was, "I found that majors easier to win because half the guys didn't think they could win it." Mm. Yeah, so yeah, it's followed. Kepka obviously follows that rule as well. Yeah, so I, I, I without you know wanting to disparage his record at all because obviously it is, it's an absolutely incredible achievement I think um, you know the fact he, he won so many people like Doug Sanders people like Seve in 86 in a way there's, there are comparisons I think with Faldo but or comparisons with any any great champion I guess who, who's won majors consistently is that you know they've also they've won a few outright for sure but they've also just been there to let the trophy kind of drop in their arms when someone else has kind of spilt it. And obviously like Fowder did that with Scott Hoke and Greg Norman a couple of times. And I think Jack, Jack Nicholas would have done that with a few players as well, which is, you know, not to take away from what he's done. Cause obviously you have to have the mental fortitude to, to be there and, and not fade away. But um, yeah, I mean, it's impressive whichever way you look at it. Yeah. I think he had a great, I mean, if you look at his numbers, he had six Masters wins, uh, five US PGAs, four US Opens and three uh, British Opens or the Opens. And it, it's there's a nice sort of flow to those numbers. You look at it and think, well, in Masters, he was absolutely prolific. And you could argue then, did he struggle a little bit more on links? And when I, you know, kind of dug into it in a little bit more detail, I didn't actually feel like that was really the case. He had that spell from 1970 with a playoff win over Doug Sanders. And then essentially was there or thereabouts on every single open, whether it was, you know, Carnoustie or Lytham or wherever. He was right up there every single year. He just didn't quite get the win until... Um, you know, for a little for a little while on on those, um, but it's just. I love how he's staggering. Seventy three PGA Tour wins, nine European Tour wins, three PGA Tour of Australasia wins, four other Australasian wins, nineteen other random wins, ten senior PGA Tour wins, and eight other senior wins, plus all the all the eighteen majors. <laughs> Yeah. So I'll just Plus, give I'll give you a few others. Everything else, President's Cup. Just a couple other ones here that I pulled out when I did a bit of, bit of sort of like looking for kind of headline stats. In forty-four majors from nineteen seventy to nineteen eighty, Nicholas missed one cut. 
<laughs> in that span, out of 44 majors, he finished inside the top 10 38 times. 30 of those were in the top five, and he won 10 of them. It's not bad, is it? Sounds like, <laughs> like Poulter's great. And you just wonder whether, you know, <laughs> the reason he... <laughs> you wonder whether the reason he doesn't get the recognition that he perhaps deserves is partly because, you know, obviously we're still seeing Tiger's career play out. And I guess there's a inevitable bias amongst people who are watching golf. They want to believe they're witnessing the greatest era, but also just the fact that there probably wasn't, well, there definitely wasn't the, the level of sort of global communications and just media coverage of golf back mm. then that, you got it, you know, in the 1990s when it reached across all sports, really, um, and coincided with Tiger's rise. But, you know, those statistics alone, they certainly are on a par or, or probably exceed the Tiger Woods cut stats and, and the the major stats that Tiger's um, had. Well, I think part of the reason, going back to Bruce's thing, though, is it's really, really difficult, I think, to compare the two because... Obviously, Tiger came into an era uh, where he just completely dominated. And the competition was strong, but he completely dominated it. Similar to how Jack dominated the era. But he had Arnie and he had Gary Player. Um, but that was pretty much it, if you're looking at it. Mm, and you get to this Maybe, point now maybe not. Where, maybe not. I mean, you've got some very good but, players. But now there's just... It feels like because of Tiger, and essentially because of Jack, but because of Tiger, the fields now... You could look down a list of a major and see 25 guys. You're like, yeah, I reckon I, I think that's really easy to do when it's current. So just, just playing devil's advocate for a minute, I think that's really easy to do um, be, because you look, you're looking at the leaderboard on a short-term basis. And if you, sometimes even if you flip over to like a 2005 years open, you'll see names on there and be like, what the hell? Where did they go? He had golfers around him that weren't it wasn't just Arnie and Gary Player you got Johnny Miller Wisecalf you know towards the end he's coming up against people like you know Tom Kite Greg Norman are still playing while he's going on and winning in 86 you know Watson Billy Casper you know these are seriously seriously good golfers and I, I think it's very easy to say with the benefit of hindsight oh actually his peer group was never strong enough because people people will probably say that about you know, the era we're in right now in 20 years time when there's a bunch of sort of, you know, young kids trying to sort of knock knock us off top spot and podcasting. They'll be, you know, I think it's just very easy to do. I'm not, I'm... Yeah, yeah. I agree with you wholeheartedly, Sam. I think there's definitely a, a tendency for people to say, well, to look back at things and with almost like rose-tinted spectacles and be like, well, yeah, Tiger was able to dominate because... Yeah, he was the first one to come along and just murder the golf ball 300 through the air. And Jack dominated in his era because there was really weak competition. And actually now you look at the fields and they're just totally loaded. It's like, actually, I don't think that theory really holds water at the moment. Probably because golf is such a mental game at at its core. Um, and you just, the, the other thing with that theory is it hasn't really been borne out by the results over the last few years like if you look at who's won majors over the last few years they've just been whole household names by and large haven't they really so but i would argue i but i my my counterpoint to that would be um you look at it now and you've got many many players with one or two majors which is essentially completely in disagreement with what jack nicholas 
would say about his peers. I don't think you have, though, because Jordan Spieth's won three, McElroy's won four, Kepka's won four. So I don't know. Like Again, I'm not sure if that is, is, a, is a true statement, really. You I mean, I'd, I'd probably go out on a limb here and say you'd have to go back to 2016, Danny Willett winning the Masters to pick a real yeah. bizarre winner. We were in the, the longest last... spell of, in history of someone at not... Hang on, let me got to be careful I word this. We're in the longest spell in history of since the World Golf Rankings have been, and granted that's fairly recent, um, of someone outside the top 50 not having won a major championship. So we're in the, you know... Okay, but, but just, just to go on my point here, just to go... We've got Lowry, recent winner. Um, on his home soil, Molinari. on his home soil, Molinari was a top 20 Molinari. player in the world. Stenson, re- fairly recent winner. Jason Day hasn't won loads. Sergio has won one. Uh, so let me just play. Hang on, just, just to try and bring the point home then. I'm going to just read you the US Open winners from 1970 to 1980. Completely arbitrary. 1970, Tony Jacklin. 1971, Lee Trevino. 1972, Jack Nicholas. 73, Johnny Miller. Then you've got Hale Irwin, Lou Graham, Jerry Pate, Hubert Green, Andy North, Hale Irwin. Now, I wouldn't say they were necessarily... Andy certainly... North, yeah. great player. But they're not in the history books as being, you know, the greatest of all time. And these are people that were beating, you know, some of the best golfers around in their day. I just think it's a very easy thing in, say, in hindsight. The same could be said about Bobby Jones. Yeah. Well, like Ernie says, in hindsight, yeah, if Tiger wasn't there, I would have like yeah. probably won twenty. But <laughs> it's easy for Ernie to say uh, that. Yeah, easy for Ernie to say, isn't it? <laughs> um, but I think it, it's it's interesting. Do, I mean, do we think the eighteen will ever be beat? Parking the Tiger thing and whether he will. Monty or not. Monty would have won one if Tiger wasn't there. <laughs> if Elk wasn't it, there as well. If Elk wasn't there to just absolutely go and break a few hearts, I think Monty would have won one. Uh, yeah, <laughs> don't don't. Don't forget our boy Michael Campbell beating the Tiger. Yeah. Mm. Rich Beams, mate. Your favourite commentator uh, on Beam? Sky Sports beat, yeah. beat him. So I love Rich Beam. Um, um, no, I don't, Sam. I don't think it's doable anymore. You said there, the yeah. Stand the test of time. I'd say yes, actually. Um, and even if you discount Tiger, I, I think you've got to be an absolute moron to rule out something like that happening again, because. It, 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 you know, you just don't know who's going to come along and Bryson, oh, by the sounds of things. Exactly. I mean, we discussed he, him earlier. Yeah. The Messiah has arrived. I'd be a bit disappointed if it was him who went on and won 25 majors or a long drive person. But um, I think, yeah, that the idea that we've solved golf and we just know how it's going to be, um, you know, how to play it, I think is a little bit misleading. I think personally, the reason I hold my view is I think um, people like Jack and people like Tiger have just pulled the game up huge percentage points each time. So every time they arrive, they set this new level that everybody's got to get to. And then Tiger comes along and sets this level that everybody's got to get to. Um, And like Michael Clayton said when we spoke to him, you know, sure as eggs as eggs, they will match the current outstanding person that will be matched by the normal of the next generation. But I feel like we're getting to smaller increments of improvement, which is why I don't think there will be someone that's so standout that can go and smash out 20 majors because I think that the increments now are just becoming smaller and smaller. It's fair. That's my it's fair point. Yeah, it's a fair point, but it seems hard to believe, but it also seems foolish to rule it out would be my best. Mm. 
Yeah, as well. uh, it is, it's, it's ridiculous to rule out, but in my opinion, I just can't. I just, I don't look at anybody in golf and think, yeah, they they've got the potential to do it, and including Tiger. But again, Woods. I'm not sure people thought that of Tiger and Jack when they were coming along. They they would have thought, yeah, this person's really Maybe. good, but you don't really know until you actually see it unfolding in so, front of your very eyes. I think. So, in in recap, then you know, incredibly glittering professional career superb amateur career i believe woods won another usm i think he won three i might be wrong there um, yeah he won three in a row of uh, both the juniors and the uh, so maybe he's just nicked one, it on that then jack kind of goes into you know course architecture and design there's other strands to it but nicholas design is big business it's you know tom you've done quite a bit of research i'll pause and, and hold back my kind of thoughts on that but you know what what did what was take us through your course architecture work with Nick well we we as a as a pod of traditionally slated uh player architects often because they've come along and just whacked their name on it and um you know just seen it as an extra revenue stream uh, and from what i gather it's kind of how nicholas started really so nicholas uh, first got approached by Pete Dye in the 60s to um, to look at the golf club in Ohio, which is which is near where he lives and where he's from, certainly. Um, and by all intents and purposes, Nicholas didn't really fancy doing it in the beginning. He kind of got dragged along and Pete Dye was quite firm with it and said, come on, I'm not going to let this go. Come and have a look at it. And he's um, he's gone and had a look at it. And um, one of the first things... Pete Dye showed him, it's only, it's only Pete Dye's fourth course to be fair, but uh, Pete Dye showed him a par three um, and Nicholas looked at it and was like, I think that looks garbage. And, um, and Pete Dye was like, okay, well you draw me something, show me what you think. And it's kind of, he starts trying to draw a, a hole out for this, this plot of land that he's got and he kind of gets the bug. And this was in the 60s, so he's still playing, he's still in his prime really. And then... Um, it was his. It was basically it was Dye's uh, rendition of a hole at Presswick, actually. But he, Jack, was like, no, 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 I'm not going to do it. So he, he kind of had a go at it. Um, I, you know, he's not going to be taking it full time in the '60s because he was still on his pump. Um, but he created a decent amount of courses in the '70s. He, he obviously collaborated at Harbour Town, which we talked about the other week with Pete Dye again, another collaboration. But it was the '70s when he started going off on his own. Um, but. It's difficult to say that perhaps Jack is an outrageously good course architect because he is the antithesis of like the core Crenshaw and the doke of, of now in terms of these boys are looking at pieces of land and saying, I'm only going to work on them if they are, you know, pristine bits of land and I'm going to work on great golf courses. Jack Nicholas himself has uh, been accredited with over 300 golf courses and his his company, which I forget the name of, is Nicholas and Sons or something like that, um, which is him, his four sons and his son-in-law. Uh, they've got over 400 courses. So there is bound to be a bit of dross in there. No matter what, how you shake that up, there's bound to be a little bit of dross in there because it's just sheer volume, isn't it? Um, is that Welsh for not good? Yes. A bit of absolute dross. dross. <laughs> absolute dross, boy. Has he designed any courses in Wales? A bit of dross in there. Tom, has he been over um, Celtic Manor? 
Montgomery was Celtic <laughs> did one in Celtic Manor. Near, hasn't he? He's done like a great quote about Celtic Manor, isn't that? Always makes me giggle. Of course, he's going to die. Um, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but he's an interesting one. Like Harbour Town, we all agree, was a fairly good track. We like that. Um, and he had, a, he had a good say in that. Um, Glen Eagles. He's got some great courses. Glen Eagles, well, he's, which was really, yeah. Kings and it Queen. was really looked at, the Glen Eagles course as being uh, like it didn't fit in that complex because mm. you've got these highland tracks and then you've got this american pga style course uh so it wasn't well received but obviously it's gone on to do a Ryder cup and a solheim cup so well, it's built yeah. for the purposes um, isn't it, of the Ryder cup so basically yeah. yeah another fabulous fabulous um, thought process um there's but there's there's stuff in the uk isn't there that's not particularly i mean i don't know st melian's probably as greatest in the uk when i when you look at yeah, things and that's um, down in cornwall and even that's i mean that's I mean, it's barely noteworthy. Muirfield Village, for some reason, stands out on the rankings as being absolutely revered now. Oh, it's because Jack's put his name yeah. against it, hasn't he? So. Oh, yeah, but no, Muirfield Village is, is I mean, that's that's genuinely right up there in terms of, you know, Golf 100, you know, they, they, it, it consistently reaches top 100 globally. Um, really? When you think there's, yeah, but then there's over 400. And if you played it? No, there's over 400 courses that he's, you know, put his name to. I mean, I... You know, there, I think there's a difference in his firm where he has like the signature design. So like a mm. Jack Nicholas signature, I think, would be very different to just putting his name to a, a hotel golf course. And some of those he's much more active. Now, I've played, you know, Mon- Monterey, for example, would be a good holiday golf mm. course to talk about in Portugal for people that go out there and play their golf. That's a signature. Yeah, that's that a is, signature. That's, so a, that's that's one where he's actively been involved in the design and routing and shaping yeah. of the golf course. I had, a ho- really I had the first hole in one there. Yeah. Humble, humble brag. <laughs> wow. What, the whole course? Yeah, it only just well, opened. I was, tw- I was 12 and I was playing off the ladies' tees, so I'm not sure if it really counts. You had the but, first uh, hole in one, though, at, at Montreux since it, when I it opened. I think so, yeah. yeah. Pretty impressive start. Um, I wouldn't say... I wouldn't Blade say in a nine-iron. <laughs> but it is the antithesis of what we talk yeah. about on kind of classical um, golf courses. It's because it's it? on tour and it gets, um, you know, media presence and all the rest of it. The, the problem I have, I, I played Monterey. I played it with in the same party that Sam played a few, like, a few years back. Um, and I was reading through Jack's design philosophies and it's a quite an interesting piece on... Um, on his design philosophies, but what he writes and what he says seems to be the complete opposite of what I remember, which is, which is, uh, I found quite difficult. What were they? Whether I just played. Okay. Well, first of all, um, a lot of Nicholas's course critics would say that he plays a lot, designs a lot of left to right shots because he's a left to right player. Um, being largely kind of knocked back over time. I think he does a bit of both, but, he tries to say that he, he designs each one individually, but there should be uh, two threes and two fives every nine. Um, to avoid blind shots, should never have a blind shot, and the hole should always be laid out in front of you. Now, this is the bit that grated me, because I played at Monterey, and I think I probably only saw half the greens. They all seem to be in my memory, above the approach, which is part of the reason A lot of them I, are, yeah. Didn't didn't really like it a huge amount because I felt like I was just guessing what the, the thing was going to do. It's also really penal so th- as a golf course, I think. Horrendously so. It's got that local oh, ruling. If you go out yeah. the, essentially into the scrub, you just the take, rule. Yeah. You take a take a 
take a drop, don't you? Yeah, Horrifically uh, lots of water, lots of force carries. Um, I, I highly recommend going there and playing it off the back tees just to punish yourselves when you're on holiday because it's just, you know, whenever you... Just to waste 500 Whenever pounds. you're feeling too good about life, just go there, peg it off the back tees and just, you know, play such a poor standard of golf that you want to quit the game and, and you'll love it. <laughs> but uh, well, no, I like it. All jokes. I, I did. I actually think it's a great layout, personally. But I, I tease is an interesting point. Yeah, Nicholas says that he basically doesn't design gorilla courses. And What's that? The hundred percent, well, like monsters courses yeah, like, that you've got to be fucking huge to play. Otherwise, you can't play them. And the which again, I thought I I remember I didn't even play Monterey's off the backs, but. You know, you you look sixty. It was it was long enough for, for a normal tee, and to look sixty yards back and see another tee was just silly. And then in his in his thing, he says the tee should be a hundred percent in length, and there should be five sets of tees, and there should be ninety five, ninety, um, eighty, and seventy. And that's how those those should be laid out. But that wasn't what I saw at Monterey. The tees were miles back. I mean, unplayable back. Seems like quite a formulaic approach to design, so, I think, would be listening to you read that back. It seems really yeah. formulaic. Yeah. Um, the greens, I mean, he, he, he's a big fan of the punch bowl. Doesn't like to, he likes to see concave and not convex greens and um, doesn't like to have waters on the first hole because he feels like people should be tuned in before they get to water. I mean, it all seems really formulaic, doesn't yeah. it? Yeah. It doesn't seem like someone who says they just read the I think, yeah. But again, Experts though, that would call it cookie so cutter, mon- wouldn't they? That is so Monterey all over, though, where... And, yeah, it's a shame that that's the only course that I think, you know, most of us have played that we can kind of have any sort of common discussion of. But, yeah, the first hole, there's no water on it, but it's an absolutely vicious dog leg, and it's not an easy hole by any stretch. And then on the second, you've just got an ocean down the right-hand side or a massive lake down the right-hand side that's just inviting balls. So, yeah, I, that to me does just sound very formulaic again it's tough to because monterey is is one of the only ones we've had to do but you are incapable of playing that course if you can't carry the ball more than 160 170 yards it'd be impossible to play that course Mm. so so in the interest of, of, of summarizing it's it seems like the you know no one's waxing lyrical about his working course architecture, but he has created a large amount and his legacy in the game will, I think, well, maybe it protects his legacy in the game and also, yeah, it's a shitload of golf courses, isn't it? Which means you're giving lots of people the ability to play more golf. So, 100%. You know, yeah. Mm. Interesting stuff. Enjoyed that. I thought that was quite interesting picking through his career in a bit more detail. I didn't know as much about Jack as I probably should. Um Yeah. So yeah, we've got a couple of exciting guest pods coming up next next few weeks, which I hope you guys enjoy. Bit of a bit of a big slog watching a lot of Muirfield Village, and uh, that is about it. So uh, that's all we've got time for today. Thanks for tuning in. Don't forget to stay subscribed and keep commenting. Cheers, guys. Adios. Thank you. Bye bye. Watch this. <laughs>